Section 3 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 through 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 3. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1901, Part 3. The reclamation of the unsettled, arid public lands presents a different problem. Here it is not enough to regulate the flow of streams. The object of the government is to dispose the land to settlers who will build homes upon it. To accomplish this object, water must be brought within their reach. The pioneer settlers on the arid public domain chose their homes along streams from which they could themselves divert the water to reclaim their holdings. Such opportunities are practically gone. There remain, however, vast areas of public land which can be made available for homestead settlement, but only by reservoirs and mainline canals, impracticable for private enterprise. These irrigation works should be built by the national government. The lands reclaimed by them should be reserved by the government for actual settlers, and the cost of construction should so far as possible be repaid by the land reclaimed. The distribution of the water, the division of the streams among irrigators, should be left to the settlers themselves in conformity with state laws, and without interference with those laws or with vested rights. The policy of the national government should be to aid irrigation in the several states and territories in such manner as will enable the people and the local communities to help themselves, and as will stimulate needed reforms in the state laws and regulations governing irrigation. The reclamation and settlement of the arid lands will enrich every portion of our country, just as the settlement of the Ohio and Mississippi valleys brought prosperity to the Atlantic states. The increased demand for manufactured articles will stimulate the industrial production, while wider home markets and the trade of Asia will consume the larger food supplies and effectually prevent Western competition with Eastern agriculture. Indeed, the products of irrigation will be consumed chiefly in upbuilding local centers of mining and other industries, which would otherwise not come into existence at all. Our people as a whole will profit, for successful homemaking is but another name for the upbuilding of the nation. The necessary foundation has already been laid for the inauguration of the policy just described. It would be unwise to begin by doing too much for a great deal will doubtless be learned, both as to what can and what cannot be safely attempted by the early efforts, which must of necessity be partly experimental in character. At the very beginning, the government should make clear, beyond shadow of doubt, its intention to pursue this policy on lines of the broadest public interest. No reservoir or canal should ever be built to satisfy selfish personal or local interests, but only in accordance with the advice of trained experts. After long investigation has shown the locality where all the conditions combine to make the work most needed and fraught with the greatest usefulness to the community as a whole, there should be no extravagance, and the believers in the need of irrigation will most benefit their cause by seeing to it that it is free from the least taint of excessive or reckless expenditure of the public monies. Whatever the nation does for the extension of irrigation should harmonize with and tend to improve the condition of those now living on irrigated land. We are not at the starting point of this development. Over 200 millions of private capital has already been expended in the construction of irrigation works, 
and many million acres of arid land reclaimed a high degree of enterprise and ability has been shown in the work itself but as much cannot be said in reference to the laws relating thereto the security and value of the homes created depend largely on the stability of titles to water but the majority of these rest on the uncertain foundation of court decisions rendered in ordinary suits at law with a few credible exceptions the arid states have failed to provide for the certain and just division of streams in times of scarcity lax and uncertain laws have made it possible to establish rights to water in excess of actual uses or necessities many streams have already passed into private ownership or a control equivalent to ownership whoever controls this stream practically controls the land it renders productive and the doctrine of private ownership of water apart from land cannot prevail without causing enduring wrong the recognition of such ownership which has been permitted to grow up in the arid regions should give way to a more enlightened and larger recognition of the rights of the public in the control and disposal of the public water supplies laws founded upon conditions obtaining in humid regions where water is too abundant to justify hoarding it have no proper application in a dry country in the arid states the only right to water which should be recognized is that of use in irrigation this right should attach to the land reclaimed and be inseparable therefrom granting perpetual water rights to others than users without compensation to the public is open to all the objections which apply to giving away perpetual franchises to the public utilities of cities a few of the western states have already recognized this and have incorporated in their constitutions the doctrine of perpetual state ownership of water the benefits which have followed the unaided development of the past justify the nation's aid and cooperation in the more difficult and important work yet to be accomplished laws so vitally affecting homes as those which control the water supply will only be effective when they have the sanction of the irrigators reforms can only be final and satisfactory when they come through the enlightenment of the people most concerned the larger development which national aid ensures should however awaken in every arid state the determination to make its irrigation system equal in justice and effectiveness that of any country in the civilized world nothing could be more unwise than for isolated communities to continue to learn everything experimentally instead of profiting by what is already known elsewhere we are dealing with a new and momentous question in the pregnant years while institutions are forming and what we do will affect not only the present but future generations our aim should be not simply to reclaim the largest area of land and provide homes for the largest number of people but to create for this new industry the best possible social and industrial conditions and this requires that we not only understand the existing situation but avail ourselves of the best experience of the time in the solution of its problems a careful study should be made both by the nation and the states of the irrigation laws and conditions here and abroad ultimately it will probably be necessary for the nation to cooperate with the several arid states in proportion as these states by their legislation and administration show themselves fit to receive it in hawaii our aim must be to develop the territory on the traditional american lines we do not wish a region of large estates tilled by cheap labor we wish a healthy american community of men who 
themselves till the farms they own all our legislation for the island should be shaped with this end in view the well-being of the average homemaker must for the true test of the healthy development of the islands the land policy should as nearly as possible be modelled on our homestead system it is a pleasure to say that it is hardly more necessary to report as to puerto rico than as to any state or territory within our continental limits the island is thriving as never before and it is being administered efficiently and honestly its people are now enjoying liberty and order under the protection of the united states and upon this fact we congratulate them and ourselves their material welfare must be as carefully and jealously considered as the welfare of any other portion of our country we have given them the greatest gift of free access for their products to the markets of the united states i ask the attention of the congress to the need of legislation concerning the public lands of puerto rico in cuba such progress has been made toward putting the independent government of the island upon a firm footing that before the present session of the congress closes this will be an accomplished fact cuba then will start as her own mistress and to the beautiful queen of the antilles as she unfolds this new page of her destiny we extend our heartiest greetings and good wishes elsewhere i have discussed the question of reciprocity in the case of cuba however there are weighty reasons of morality and of national interest why the policy should be held to have a peculiar application and i most earnestly ask your attention to the wisdom indeed to the vital need of providing for a substantial reduction in the tariff duties on cuban imports into the united states cuba has in her constitution affirmed what we desired that she should stand in international matters in closer and more friendly relations with us than with any other power and we are bound by every consideration of honor and expediency to pass commercial measures in the interest of her material well-being in the philippines our problem is larger they are very rich tropical islands inhabited by many varying tribes representing widely different stages of progress toward civilization our earnest effort is to help these people upward along the stony and difficult path that leads to self-government we hope to make our administration of the islands honorable to our nation by making it of the highest benefit to the filipinos themselves and as an earnest of what we intend to do we point to what we have done already a greater measure of material prosperity and of governmental honesty and efficiency has been attained in the philippines than ever before in their history it is no light task for a nation to achieve the temperamental qualities without which the institutions of free government are but an empty mockery our people are now successfully governing themselves because for more than a thousand years they have been slowly fitting themselves sometimes consciously sometimes unconsciously toward this end what has taken us thirty generations to achieve we cannot expect to have another race accomplish out of hand especially when large portions of that race start very behind the point which our ancestors had reached even thirty generations ago in dealing with the philippine people we must show both patience and strength forbearance and steadfast resolution our aim is high we do not desire to do for the islanders merely what has elsewhere been done for tropic peoples by even the best foreign governments we hope to do for them what has never before been done for any people of the tropics 
to make them fit for self-government after the fashion of the really free nations history may safely be challenged to show a single instance in which a masterful race such as ours having been forced by the exigencies of war to take possession of an alien land has behaved to its inhabitants with the disinterested zeal for their progress that our people have shown in the philippines to leave the islands at this time would mean that they would fall into a welter of murderous anarchy such desertion of duty on our part would be a crime against humanity the character of governor taft and of his associates and subordinates is a proof if such is needed of the sincerity of our effort to give the islanders a constantly increasing measure of self-government exactly as fast as they show themselves fit to exercise it since the civil government was established not an appointment has been made in the islands with any reference to considerations of political influence or to aught else save the fitness of the man and the needs of the country in our anxiety for the welfare and progress of the philippines may be that here and there we have gone too rapidly in giving them local self-government it is on this side that our error if any has been committed no competent observer sincerely desirous of finding out the facts and influenced only by a desire for the welfare of the natives can assert that we have not gone far enough we have gone to the very verge of safety in hastening the process to have taken a single step farther or faster in advance would have been folly and weakness and might well have been crime we are extremely anxious that the natives shall show the power of governing themselves we are anxious first for their sakes and next because it relieves us of a great burden there need not be the slightest fear of our not continuing to give them all the liberty for which they are fit the only fear is test in our over anxiety we give them a degree of independence for which they are unfit thereby inviting reaction and disaster as fast as there is any reasonable hope that in a given district the people can govern themselves self-government has been given in that district there is not a locality fitted for self-government which has not received it but it may well be that in certain cases it will have to be withdrawn because the inhabitants show themselves unfit to exercise it such instances have already occurred in other words there is not the slightest chance of our failing to show a sufficiently humanitarian spirit the danger comes in the opposite direction there are still troubles ahead in the islands the insurrection has become an affair of local banditti and marauders who deserve no higher regard than the brigands of portions of the old world encouragement direct or indirect to these insurrectors stands on the same footing as encouragement to hostile indians in the days when we still had indian wars exactly as our aim is to give to the indian who remains peaceful the fullest and amplest consideration but to have it understood that we will show no weakness if he goes on the warpath so we must make it evident unless we are false to our own traditions and to the demands of civilization and humanity that while we will do everything in our power for the filipino who is peaceful we will take the sternest measures with the filipino who follows the path of the insurrecto and the ladrone the highest praise is due to large numbers of the natives of the islands for their steadfast loyalty the Maccabees have been conspicuous for their courage and devotion to the flag i recommend that the secretary of war be empowered to take some systematic action in the way of aiding those of these men who were crippled in the service and the families of those who were killed 
the time has come when there should be additional legislation for the philippines nothing better can be done for the islands than to introduce industrial enterprises nothing would benefit them so much as throwing them open to industrial development the connection between idleness and mischief is proverbial and the opportunity to do remunerative work is one of the surest preventatives of war of course no business man will go into the philippines unless it is to his interest to do so and it is immensely to the interest of the islands that he should go in it is therefore necessary that the congress should pass laws by which the resources of the islands can be developed so that franchises for limited terms of years can be granted to companies doing business in them and every encouragement be given to the incoming of businessmen of every kind not to permit this is to do a wrong to the philippines the franchises must be granted and the business permitted only under regulations which will guarantee the islands against any kind of improper exploitation but the vast natural wealth of the islands must be developed and the capital willing to develop it must be given the opportunity the field must be thrown open to individual enterprise which has been the real factor in the development of every region over which our flag is flown it is urgently necessary to enact suitable laws dealing with general transportation mining banking currency homesteads and the use and ownership of the lands and timber these laws will give free play to industrial enterprise and the commercial development which will surely follow will accord to the people of the islands the best proofs of the sincerity of our desire to aid them i call your attention most earnestly to the crying need of a cable to hawaii and the philippines to be continued from the philippines to points in asia we should not defer a day longer than necessary the construction of such a cable it is demanded not merely for commercial but political and military considerations either the congress should immediately provide for the construction of a government cable or else an arrangement should be made by which like advantages to those accruing from a government cable may be secured to the government by contract with a private cable company no single great material work which remains to be undertaken on this continent is of such consequence to the american people as the building of a canal across the isthmus connecting north and south america its importance to the nation is by no means limited merely to its material effects upon our business prosperity and yet with view to these effects alone it would be to the last degree important for us immediately to begin it while its beneficial effects would perhaps be most marked upon the pacific coast and the gulf and south atlantic states it would also greatly benefit other sections it is emphatically a work which is for the interest of the entire country to begin and complete as soon as possible it is one of those great works which only a great nation can undertake with prospects of success and which when done are not only permanent assets in the nation's material interests but standing monuments to its constructive ability i am glad to be able to announce to you that our negotiations on this subject with great britain conducted on both sides in a spirit of friendliness and mutual goodwill and respect have resulted in my being able to lay before the senate a treaty which if ratified will enable us to begin preparations for an isthmian canal at any time which guarantees to this nation every right that it has ever asked in connection with a canal 
in this treaty the old clayton bull or treaty so long recognized as inadequate to supply the base for the construction and maintenance of a necessarily american ship canal is abrogated it specifically provides that the united states alone shall do the work of building and assume the responsibility of safeguarding the canal and shall regulate its neutral use by all nations on terms of equality without the guarantee or interference of any outside nation from any quarter the signed treaty will at once be laid before the senate and if approved the congress can then proceed to give effect to the advantages it secures us by providing for the building of the canal the true end of every great and free people should be self-respecting peace and this nation most earnestly desires sincere and cordial friendship with all others over the entire world of recent years wars between the great civilized powers has become less and less frequent wars with barbarous or semi-barbarous peoples come in an entirely different category being merely a most regrettable but necessary international police duty which must be performed for the sake of the welfare of mankind peace can only be kept with certainty where both sides wish to keep it but more and more the civilized peoples are realizing the wicked folly of war and are attaining that condition of just and intelligent regard for the rights of others which will in the end as we hope and believe make worldwide peace possible the peace conference at the hague give definite expression to this hope and belief and marked a stride toward their attainment the same peace conference acquiesced in our statement of the monroe doctrine as compatible with the purposes and aims of the conference the monroe doctrine should be the cardinal feature of the foreign policy of all the nations of the two americas as it is of the united states just seventy-eight years have passed since president monroe in his annual message announced that the american continents are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any european power in other words the monroe doctrine is a declaration that there must be no territorial aggrandizement by any non-american power at the expense of any american power on american soil it is in no wise intended as hostile to any nation in the old world still less is it intended to give cover to any aggression by one new world power at the expense of any other it is simply a step and a long step toward assuring the universal peace of the world by securing the possibility of permanent peace on this hemisphere during the past century other influences have established the permanence and independence of the smaller states of europe through the monroe doctrine we hope to be able to safeguard like independence and secure like permanence for the lesser among the new world nations this doctrine has nothing to do with the commercial relations of any american power save that it in truth allows each of them to form such as it desires in other words it is really a guarantee of the commercial independence of the americas we do not ask under this doctrine for any exclusive commercial dealings with any other american state we do not guarantee any state against punishment if it misconducts itself provided that punishment does not take the form of the acquisition of territory by any non-american power our attitude in cuba is a sufficient guarantee of our own good faith we have not the slightest desire to secure any territory at the expense of any of our neighbors we wish to work with them hand in hand so that all of us may be uplifted together and we rejoice over the good fortune of any of them 
we gladly hail their material prosperity and political stability and are concerned and alarmed if any of them fall into industrial or political chaos we do not wish to see any old world military power grow up on this continent or to be compelled to become a military power ourselves the peoples of the americas can prosper best if left to work out their own salvation in their own way the work of upbuilding the navy must be steadily continued no one point of our policy foreign or domestic is more important than this to the honor and material welfare and above all to the peace of our nation in the future whether we desire it or not we must henceforth recognize that we have international duties no less than international rights even if our flag were hauled down in the philippines and puerto rico even if we decided not to build the isthmian canal we should need a thoroughly trained navy of adequate size or else be prepared definitely and for all time to abandon the idea that our nation is among those whose sons go down to the sea in ships unless our commerce is always to be carried in foreign bottoms we must have warcraft to protect it inasmuch however as the american people have no thought of abandoning the path upon which they have entered and especially in view of the fact that the building of the isthmian canal is fast becoming one of the matters which the whole people are united in demanding it is imperative that our navy should be put and kept in the highest state of efficiency and should be made to answer to our growing needs so far from being in any way a provocation to war an adequate and highly trained navy is the best guarantee against war the cheapest and most effective peace insurance the cost of building and maintaining such a navy represents the very lightest premium for insuring peace which this nation can possibly pay probably no other great nation in the world is so anxious for peace as we are there is not a single civilized power which has anything whatever to fear from aggressiveness on our part all we want is peace and toward this end we wish to be able to secure the same respect for our rights from others which we are eager and anxious to extend to their rights in return to ensure fair treatment to us commercially and to guarantee the safety of the american people our people intend to abide by the monroe doctrine and to insist upon it as the one sure means of securing the peace of the western hemisphere the navy offers us the only means of making our insistence upon the monroe doctrine anything but a subject of derision to whatever nation chooses to disregard him we desire the peace which comes as of right to the just man armed not the peace granted on terms of ignominy to the craven and the weakling it is not possible to improvise a navy after war breaks out the ships must be built and the main trained long in advance some auxiliary vessels can be turned into makeshifts which will do in default of any better for the minor work and a proportion of raw men can be mixed with the highly trained their shortcomings being made good by the skill of their fellows but the efficient fighting force of the navy when pitted against an equal opponent will be found almost exclusively in the warships that have been regularly built and in the officers and men who through years of faithful performance of sea duty have been trained to handle their formidable but complex and delicate weapons with the highest efficiency in the late war with spain the ships that dealt the decisive blows at manila and santiago had been launched from two to fourteen years and they were able to do as they did because the men in the conning towers the gun turrets and the engine rooms 
had through long years of practice at sea learned how to do their duty our present navy was begun in eighteen eighty two at that period our navy consisted of a collection of antiquated wooden ships already almost as out of place against modern war vessels as the galleys of alcibiades and hamilcar certainly as the ships of trump and blake nor at that time did we have men fit to handle a modern man-of-war under the wise legislation of the congress and the successful administration of a secession of patriotic secretaries of the navy belonging to both political parties the work of upbuilding the navy went on and ships equal to any in the world of their kind were continually added and what was even more important these ships were exercised at sea singly and in squadrons until the men aboard them were able to get the best possible service out of them the result was seen in the short war with spain which was decided with such rapidity because of the infinitely greater preparedness of our navy than of the spanish navy while awarding the fullest honor to the men who actually commanded and manned the ships which destroyed the spanish sea forces in the philippines and in cuba we must not forget that an equal meed of praise belongs to those without whom neither blow could have been struck the congressmen who voted years in advance the money to lay down the ships to build the guns to buy the armor plate the department officials and the businessmen and wage workers who furnished what the congress had authorized the secretaries of the navy who asked for and expended the appropriations and finally the officers who in fair weather and foul on actual sea service trained and disciplined the crews of the ships when there was no war in sight all are entitled to a full share in the glory of manila and santiago and the respect accorded by every true american to those who wrought such single triumph for our country it was forethought and preparation which secured us the overwhelming triumph of eighteen ninety eight we fail to show forethought and preparation now there may come a time when disaster will befall us instead of triumph and should this time come the fault will rest primarily not upon those whom the accidents of events puts in supreme command at the moment but upon those who have failed to prepare in advance there should be no cessation in the work of completing our navy so far ingenuity has been wholly unable to devise a substitute for the great warcraft whose hammering guns beat out the mastery of the high seas it is unsafe and unwise not to provide this year for several additional battleships and heavy armored cruisers with auxiliary and lighter craft in proportion for the exact numbers and character i refer to you to the report of the secretary of the navy but there is something we need even more than additional ships and this is additional officers and men to provide battleships and cruisers and then lay them up with the expectation of leaving them unmanned until they are needed in actual war would be worse than folly would be a crime against the nation to send any warship against a competent enemy unless those aboard it have been trained by years of actual sea service including incessant gunnery practice would be to invite not merely disaster but the bitterest shame and humiliation four thousand additional seamen and one thousand additional marines should be provided and an increase in the officers should be provided by making a large addition to the classes at annapolis there is one small matter which should be mentioned in connection with annapolis the pretentious and unmeaning title of naval cadet should be abolished 
the title of midshipman full of historic association should be restored even in time of peace a warship should be used until it wears out for only so can it be kept fit to respond to any emergency the officers and men alike should be kept as much as possible on blue water for it is there only that they can learn their duties as they should be learned the big vessels should be manoeuvred in squadrons containing not merely battleships but the necessary proportion of cruisers and scouts the torpedo boats should be handled by the younger officers in such manner as will best fit the latter to take responsibility and meet the emergencies of actual warfare every detail ashore which can be performed by a civilian should be so performed the officer being kept for a special duty in the sea service above all gunnery practice should be unceasing it is important to have our navy of adequate size but it is even more important that ship for ship it should equal in efficiency any navy in the world this is possible only with highly drilled crews and officers and this in turn imperatively demands continuous and progressive instruction in target practice ship handling squadron tactics and general discipline our ships must be assembled in squadrons actively cruising away from harbors and never long at anchor the resulting wear upon engines and hulls must be endured a battleship worn out in long training of officers and men is well paid for by the results while on the other hand no matter in how excellent condition it is useless if the crew be not expert we now have seventeen battleships appropriated for of which nine are completed and have been commissioned for actual service the remaining eight will be ready in from two to four years but it will take at least that time to recruit and train the men to fight them it is of vast concern that we have trained crews ready for the vessels by the time they are commissioned good ships and good guns are simply good weapons and the best weapons are useless save in the hands of men who know how to fight with them the men must be trained and drilled under a thorough and well-planned system of progressive instruction while the recruiting must be carried on with still greater vigor every effort must be made to exalt the main function of the officer the command of men the leading graduates of the naval academy should be assigned to the combatant branches the line and marines many of the essentials of success are already recognized by the general board which as the central office of a growing staff is moving steadily toward a proper war efficiency and a proper efficiency of the whole navy under the secretary this general board by fostering the creation of a general staff is providing for the official and then the general recognition of our altered conditions as a nation and of the true meaning of a great war fleet which meaning is first the best men and second the best ships the naval militia forces are state organizations and are trained for coast service and in event of war they will constitute the inner line of defense they should receive hearty encouragement from the general government but in addition we should at once provide for a national naval reserve organized and trained under the direction of the navy department and subject to the call of the chief executive whenever war becomes imminent it should be a real auxiliary to the naval sea-going peace establishment and offer material to be drawn on at once for manning our ships in time of war it should be composed of graduates of the naval academy graduates of the naval militia officers and crews of coastline steamers longshore schooners fishing vessels and steam yachts together with the coast population about such centers as life-saving stations and lighthouses 
the american people must either build and maintain an adequate navy or else make up their minds definitely to accept a secondary position in international affairs not merely in political but in commercial matters it has been well said that there is no surer way of courting national disaster than to be opulent aggressive and unarmed it is not necessary to increase our army beyond its present size at this time but it is necessary to keep it at the highest point of efficiency the individual units who as officers and enlisted men compose this army are we have good reason to believe at least as efficient as those of any other army in the entire world it is our duty to see that their training is of a kind to ensure the highest possible expression of power to these units when acting in combination the conditions of modern war are such as to make an infinitely heavier demand than ever before upon the individual character and capacity of the officer and the enlisted man to make it far more difficult for men to act together with effect at present the fighting must be done in extended order which means that each man must act for himself and at the same time act in combination with others with whom he is no longer in the old-fashioned elbow-to-elbow touch under such conditions a few men of the highest excellence are worth more than many men without the special skill which is only found as the result of special training applied to men of exceptional physique and morale but nowadays the most valuable fighting man and the most difficult to perfect is the rifleman who is also a skilful and daring rider the proportion of our cavalry regiments has wisely been increased the american cavalrymen trained to a maneuver and fight with equal facility on foot and on horseback is the best type of soldier for general purposes now to be found in the world the ideal cavalryman of the present day is a man who can fight on foot as effectively as the best infantryman and who is in addition unsurpassed in the care and management of his horse and in his ability to fight on horseback a general staff should be created as for the present staff and supply departments they should be filled by details from the line the men so detailed returning after a while to their line duties it is very undesirable to have the senior grades of the army composed of men who have come to fill the positions by the mere fact of seniority a system should be adopted by which there shall be an elimination grade by grade of those who seem unfit to render the best service in the next grade justice to the veterans of the civil war who are still in the army would seem to require that in the matter of retirements they be given by law the same privileges accorded to their comrades in the navy the process of elimination of the least fit should be conducted in a manner that would render it practically impossible to apply political or social pressure on behalf of any candidate so that each man may be judged purely on his own merits pressure for the promotion of civil officials for political reasons is bad enough but it is tenfold worse where applied on behalf of officers of the army or navy every promotion and every detail under the war department must be made solely with regard to the good of the service and to the capacity and merit of the man himself no pressure political social or personal of any kind will be permitted to exercise the least effect in any question of promotion or detail and if there is reason to believe that such pressure is exercised at the instigation of the officer concerned it will be held to militate against him in our army we cannot afford to have rewards or duties distributed save on the simple ground that those who by their own merits are entitled to the rewards get them 
and that those who are peculiarly fit to do the duties are chosen to perform them every effort should be made to bring the army to a constantly increasing state of efficiency when on actual service no work save that directly in the line of such service should be required the paperwork in the army as in the navy should be greatly reduced what is needed is proved power of command and capacity to work well in the field constant care is necessary to prevent dry rot in the transportation and commissary departments end of section three